Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm really excited for this episode with Dr. Felina Hermans, who is Professor, Doctor, and IR at VU Amsterdam and the creator of a novel new programming language for teaching people to code called Hedy. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing really well. I can't wait to hear more about this. So I like to start with all of my guests going way back in time to hear their origin story how you started to code. And I know you've talked about this in some of your public talks, like I watched your Strange Loop keynote, but I'd love to hear for everyone listening, how you initially sparked that interest in coding. So when I was really small, and we're talking about maybe six, seven, my parents bought a computer. My dad had a home office. He was well, like working from home way before it was cool. And someone, we don't remember who convinced him that he needed a computer, like, oh, you know, it's modern, you have to have a computer. But then he didn't really do something with it. He did accounting for other companies, but he never really used the computer. He just made letters like with a typewriter or something. But I really liked to play on the computer. And initially I didn't really know what to do. I would also type letters on the computer and print it out with the printer. But then after a while, of course, you want to do a game, but there was no internet, so you couldn't download a game. And somehow I got my hands on a book that was basic computer games for kids and then this would just print it out basic listings. You would just copy them into the computer. I didn't know what it said. It was all in English, which is not my first language. I had no clue when I was 10. I uh, just copying basic codes into the computer. But of course, after a while, you sort of figure out if I do this, if I press here, then this happens. And then I was like, oh, wow, I can make this magical machine do whatever I want. And my lifelong love was born, I guess. That's fantastic. So you pursued it, your academic and professional career, it seems like your entire life. Did it always resonate with you? Like, did you always love coding? Were there any moments where you questioned that? Many moments in different ways also. So I really liked programming. And there were times in my life where the only thing I liked was programming. And I didn't like anything else in my teens. But there were also years in my teens where I was very interested in other things. Like I was also interested in philosophy and different cultures and literature and reading. So I also liked many other things when I was younger, let's say before I went to university. And then when I went to university, I went to an engineering school. Everything was engineering and everything was programming. And somehow my world got really small and then I got sort of less interested in it because of that, if that makes sense. On the one hand side, it was very, very cool to just do programming all the time. But also I felt, I don't know, it's sort of limiting. Like a part of me isn't nurtured enough, if that makes any sense. So then I think I sort of dropped out of law for a while, even though I kept doing it still. And then I think I had a second similar wave of that later on in life when I started my PhD. My PhD work was about helping people use spreadsheets, which I think is like the greatest programming tool ever because it allows everyone, even people that would violently disagree with you that they are programmers to do programming. So then I got really excited about working in that space 
But many people that are doing programming in not spreadsheets, like, I don't know, JavaScript or PHP or C, whatever, they were like, eh, spreadsheets, eh, it's not real programming. And that, I think, was me dropping out of programming for a different reason, where I was just, like, fed up with the people. It's like, what do you mean, not programming? Right? It has an if statement, and it has a map, and why are you a gatekeeper? And I think that was the first time that I really realized how problematic our community was. I had never been, I think, really on the receiving end of the problems, and then I was. And that also really made me fall out of love with programming for a while, where I was like, I don't care for this vibe anymore. I want to do something else with my life. And that's when I became a school teacher part time. <laughs> that's really interesting. You know, it's funny, like I had somewhat of a similar experience where I loved coding as a child and ended up getting a history degree because I really didn't love the environment of being in like a computer science or engineering department. In, in I get that. Place. Yeah. Yeah. But I still kept coding. I know a lot of people who have taken similar paths. How did teaching change that experience? Because I can only imagine that a lot of the sort of like cultural elements of the tech world don't necessarily exist inherently in young people who are learning to code. Yeah, so a little bit they do because teenagers already somehow pick up that JavaScript is more cool than Pascal. Uh, stuff like that is still clear. But you're right, a lot of it isn't really replicated in the classroom. And it was just, I'm still a school teacher a day a week. And this is like eight years ago that I started. It's just so valuable to see kids that want to learn something and that you get to be a little bit of why they also like computing. They're like, oh, I'm struggling. I really don't know how to do this. And you help them a little bit and then they can do it. And then now I'm so old as a teacher that I have kids that started with me in the first grade already graduate. In our first grade, we have a different system. So our first grade is when they're 12. I have brought kids from 12 to graduation to going on to higher education. And then, you know, some of them pick computing as a topic for their higher education. And then you're like, I did that. That's very cool. That's fantastic. I feel like I have very fond memories of my middle school computer science teacher. And we were doing Visual Basic at the time. But cool. it was just like this really fun experimental kind of class that was different than many other things I had experienced as a student. So good teachers can spark that. How did that experience of teaching as a direct instructor sort of lead to the research and this larger project of creating Hedy, which is really what I want to dig into quite a bit today? Cool. So at that point, as a researcher, I was still working on spreadsheets and I was sort of supposed to do that. But I fell out in love as we discussed already a little bit. I didn't plan to do research in the school. I just planned to do teaching in the school because I was trying to escape research. But then after a while, I saw, ah, these kids aren't learning, right? These are smart 12-year-olds and they're voluntarily picking the computing track, but they're not learning. And I cannot blame them because they're excited. I see they're excited. They're smart. They can do other things that isn't programming. But I see them not learning anything and then the first batch, maybe you're like pancakes, right? The first pancake is never a good one. It's like, okay, now maybe, maybe. But then after a while, you're like, it's not them. Something is up here. And then I got this really scientific curiosity going about, okay, how do people learn anything? And if you're in a computer science degree, specifically, I think if you're in an engineering school, I didn't have any courses about learning 
or cognition or I saw that they were struggling, but I didn't know why. And I wanted to learn more about learning. And this was this old Felina from before I went to school. It's like, oh, I'm interested in so many things. So I started to really try to understand why aren't they learning? What is making them not learn? And through that, through looking specifically at other fields, how do kids learn math? Well, how do kids learn math? We don't give them a magical calculator that can do whatever and let them press buttons. There's a lot of practice. And also there's a very clear curriculum or structure. Like first you do counting and then addition and then subtraction and then multiplication and then division. That's a sensible line where reality, in a sense, changes a little bit. For example, if you first learn subtraction, then you have five cookies on the table and there's three kids. And then you give three cookies to the three kids and you have two cookies left. So five minus three is two. Okay, but now I have three cookies on the table and I have five kids. I give everyone a cookie. How many cookies are there? Zero cookies. So the mental model initially is three minus five is zero. And then after a while, we're like, hey, but you can also go below below the cookie line and then it's minus two cookies. And I thought, huh. Interesting. Programming is not like that. Programming just gives you the magical button machine, but it doesn't have this very clearly structured approach of first this and then this and then this. Of course, we don't teach everything at once in computer science, but it's not like you can turn off specific things. It's not that like you can give them a wrong mental model because you always inherit the whole programming language. And then I thought, well, who sees this problem and also has a degree in software engineering, I can make a programming language that has a tiny mental model in which only a few things are possible. And then gradually we add concepts, we add syntax. And that's ultimately what became Heady, a programming language that is a gradual language in which you teach a subset of concepts and syntax and then expand the subset of concepts and syntax over time. And my, my goal was not to make a big living open source project that many people use. My goal was just to help my seven graders not struggle with learning a programming language. That is so interesting. So when you first created this prototype, were you testing the initial versions of it in real time with your class? Yes. And so it was an iterative development process, basically based on how students were interacting with it? Yeah, so the first version that we launched had like no CSS. It was just an HTML page with an editor. It didn't have syntax highlighting. It had nothing. It just had three different levels, but I just wanted to test. First thing I wanted to test, can I technically build this? Because if we dive into how programming languages work a little bit more, parser frameworks, which is things you use to make a programming language, they're made for one language. They're made for Python, Java. They're not really made for half a language or one eighteenth of a language. So my question was really like, if I do this with a partial framework, how much sauce do I have to put on top to get it to do this specific thing I want? Because this context of chopping up a language in small pieces isn't what the technology was made for. So one question was just, can I build this? And then another question, of course, was, does it work for any definition of work? Because, of course, there are other tools that are also not so frustrating for kids. And these are visual languages like Scratch. I'm sure your audience is quite familiar with that. But then the problem that I found with 
12, 13 year olds is that they start to find Scratch a little bit too childish. Scratch is for the elementary school kids. It's for the younger brother or sister. Scratch is not for them. They want to do the grown-up stuff, right? They want to do the Python, the JavaScript. They want to do the stuff that will make them money in some cases. They don't want to have a toy. So a question also in building it is, if I make what is in essence baby Python, right? Because Hattie leads up to Python. If I make this, will the kids see it as authentic? Will they see it as a scratch because it's easier? Or will they see it as a Python because it's letters? That wasn't clear to me. And that isn't the thing that you can really try without building it and having kids engage with it. And of course, also my question was, is it easier? Like, do they struggle less? And well, turns out that once we started trying it, not just me, but also other teachers in the same school where I was teaching, even though initially it was so buggy, right? It didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work at all. But teachers started to say, this is so much better than we used to have, even though it crashes all the time. That was like, I am on to something. I'm just seeing with my own eyes that kids, they're getting a better relationship with the computer. What is it conceptually that makes it easier? Like I went through the first couple of levels on the website just to like play around with it and see. And like, it's really interesting because there's some functions that are just Python functions. Like print is print, you know, great, awesome. But obviously, there's some others that are probably wrapped and doing more complex stuff in the background. And so from someone who's learning to code, a lot of people might argue that if you're abstracting it away too much, they won't understand the fundamentals. And so how do you sort of like find that correct balance of what you want to provide as a more complex, perhaps magical functionality compared to the raw functionality that they'll eventually touch on their own? Yes, those were like three questions in one, I think. So one question was like, how does it work, right? What does it do? So maybe let's do that first before we reflect on how do you make decisions about what it does where. Absolutely. Just to give you level one, if you haven't seen it. In Python, if you want it just text on the screen, you have to do print and then brackets and then single quotes on both sides and not double quotes on the one side. In Hattie, you do not have to do brackets because why do you need brackets? Only if you have multiple arguments to enclose in the bracket. We don't need brackets. But even why do you need quotes? You could just do print, hello, this works. In Hattie, this works because the quotes aren't necessary immediately. If you just want to print some stuff, then it's not necessary to do quotes. And then you could think, well, okay, it's not necessary, but it's not harmful. And this is where all, all the things I learned about cognition sort of matters. If you have to do a lot of things, you might not know as a beginner what is the important stuff and what is the stuff you might abstract away from. We can think, okay, print is important. It's important that you spell it correctly. And the quotes are, in a sense, not really important. Right? You know, what matters is just putting text on the screen. But some kids I saw in class got so distracted by the quotes, by the brackets, by all the stuff that's there, that they couldn't even remember what they were doing or what the code was or why they were doing it. It was, in technical terms, causing so much cognitive load. Their brains had to work so hard that they just couldn't remember anything. And if you talk, for example, which we do in level two about variables, and you want to do something really simple, like ask, what is your name? And then the thing says, hello, name. That's maybe interesting for kids to build. In Python, you have to do 
make a variable explicitly name equal sign input which is hard because it's input and not input which in my native language there's no difference between those two sounds it's very hard kids will say input all the time and you have to do brackets and quotes and then you have to remember the variable name print brackets quotes hello quote comma the variable name bracket I wanted to talk about what it means that a variable is a thing that stores a value in a computer. But the kid was just like, oh, syntax error, bracket, comma, quote. So that's the complexity that Haley takes away so that helps you focus on the concept. And then, of course, after a while in level four, we say, hey, but we do need quotation marks sometimes because otherwise, if you make a variable that's called name and you want to use the value name, now everything's very confusing. But we do it slowly. We really ramp up the complexity. Again, I really love this comparison with mathematics. We lie, quote unquote, to kids in mathematics all the time. Oh, you can't go below zero. Oh, but you can. Oh, you can. we're dividing like a pizza, right? Two thirds of a pizza because if you divide, you get two slash three. Oh, we lied. It's actually 0, 0,666666, right? Oh, we, we lied. Oh, you cannot divide and you cannot take the root of a negative number. Oh, but you can. So we're lying all the time. And kids don't love these changes. Of course, this is hard. But this is how we teach a lot. You make a small context in which stuff is really understandable. And then we change something. And then we change something just so that you get time to get your breath before you learn a new concept. That makes a lot of sense. I have not actually worked with like young kids teaching them to code, but I've helped a handful of adults learn to code. And one of the things that they always struggle with is I think similar to what you're describing, where it's like they're looking at a loop and it's like, oh, like for whatever, blah, 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 you know, it does all this stuff. And all they want to do is print out some information or answer a question and getting from this almost like technical concept of this is what a loop is to this is what I want to achieve feels like a really vast gap and it doesn't necessarily give you a satisfying payoff that quickly. Yes. Which it makes it less exciting, right? Yeah. And also all the time kids would be like, teacher, why do I have to put the quote there? And then I have to say, which I don't love as a teacher, because I tell you to, because there's no world in which I can explain to them why a quote goes there. I can do it, but this is in words they don't understand. So then I'm left with exercising my power. Just do it because I tell you to. Or the computer basically is the one really wielding the power here. It's very annoying. And what's also very interesting is that this annoyance is not neutrally distributed. Kids like me when I was 10, kids that really want to learn programming, they're okay with pain, so to say, right? They're like, okay, okay, I put the bracket there. I put the quote there because I know that the light at the end of the tunnel is going to be amazing. So they have more stamina. But who is this kid? It's more likely, like me, a kid from a rich family where there is a computer around. Now I teach so many kids, they don't have a computer. Maybe they have a phone or they have maybe a smartphone or a tablet. They don't have a computer. So the first time at the computer, they're already like, this is exciting. Who is also less likely to be excited about this? Girls, because their parents, siblings tell them, programming is hard. Programming is not for you. 
So they're already like, I don't know. I don't know if this is for me. Maybe it's not. And then you're not building an exciting story or drawing something. You're not doing very cool stuff. You're just fighting a compiler that's shouting at you in red letters, syntax error, indentation error. It's very likely then you're like, I don't care. I don't like this. Or my dad was right. This is really hard. So it's also so much, I think, about inclusion. If we make it really hard, if we make the brick wall very high and very tough, who is going to climb it? That's not going to be everyone. And we're definitely seeing in my school over the last few years where we've switched from doing Python to doing Heady, more female participation in our computer science classes. And I'm sure that's not the only reason. It wasn't a controlled experiment, but we really went from one in 20, that literally one of my first generation was a girl. And now we have like maybe 40% girls in the lower years. I'm positive that the Hedy method has been one of the things that has, let's say, not driven them away. It's not even about attracting them. It's just about not driving them away. That's fantastic. So I think we're probably relatively close in age. And certainly I remember what it was like to use computers as a kid. And in many ways, like if you didn't know some technical concepts, you couldn't do much. That was interesting. How do you think the sort of consumerization of technology has changed kids' relationships with coding and computers? Like, does the fact that they now have an iPad or a phone change how they think about computers compared to when you were learning? Yeah, that's such a deep question with a lot of different answers. I think one answer is that what you already said, like everyone that would go to do computer science when I was a kid already had built their own computer, taught themselves to program because that was the only way to gain an interest. Now, many kids that I teach, they don't necessarily have an interest in computers. Some of them just want to get rich. When I was a kid, if you want to get rich, you would become a lawyer or a doctor. I certainly wouldn't go to engineering school for the purpose of having a good career. And those kids, I mean, of course, don't necessarily love programming. They don't necessarily have prior knowledge. Like a kid that goes to medical school, have they operated on their hamster when they were 10? <laughs> no, better not, probably. Right? If someone who goes into accounting, were they doing spreadsheets when they were 12? No. So. The prior knowledge is changing because the reasons for computer science are changing. That's one aspect. Another thing I think is that when I was a kid, when I was 10, I could make video games that were about as cool as things you could then buy. Why You don't even really buy video games. Then. You could like, download them on shareware or stuff like that. It was very easy to create something that was impressive to your parents or peers. Now, I teach kids with Hattie or whatever they do, right? Or they do even if they do Scratch or JavaScript. Oh, look, the cat is dancing. That's very cool. Oh, it is asking my name and saying hello. I like this teacher. Now I want to build Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, I cannot build Minecraft, right? <laughs> that would take me a substantial amount of time and learning. So it's very hard, in a sense, to impress them. And... It's hard to communicate that they're still beginners. If you're in art class, no one thinks after three strokes and five lessons, oh, I'm going to make a Van Gogh, right? I'm going to make a Rembrandt. 
no, you can clearly see that what you're doing is not professional grade stuff. And that's okay. Everyone's at that level. Somehow, because it's digital, kids kid themselves that they can do something that a professional team takes years to build. And that tension is really hard that kids see this digital world, but they don't see the process behind it. So then they want to build what is in front of their eyes. And it's very hard to communicate to them that that is something that a professional team of people build over a few years. And then sometimes they're less impressed by the stuff that they're making. And then this can be negative on their motivation. And I don't know how to solve that problem. Yeah, I think it's often a difficult realization that people have that even as an engineer with a full-time job, you're not necessarily building these huge artistic creations, right? You're programming the <laughs> yeah. functionality for like one button in the corner. You're a plumber, basically. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, that's really, really interesting. Do you think that like a lot of these new sort of like generative programming tools are going to change the pace that people can feel like they have a good outcome? I mean, obviously, everyone's talking about AI, but I also think yeah. about low code, no code, you know, sort of drag and drop interfaces. Does that change that equation for people? A bit, yes. So they will be more easily able to cook up something cool. But then as soon as they want to do something that the system doesn't, now I'm more talking about low code than about gen AI, then you're still stuck. So one of the things I learned when I was teaching in the beginning is we had these worksheets. This was still for Python, even for Scratch also. I said, do this, do this, do this. And they would follow these steps. And then at the end of the class, and the parents could pick them up. And I would be like, aren't you proud of this cool game that you made? And one of the kids was like, no, I'm not proud because I was just following the worksheet. That was such a lesson for me because I was like, well, if I get you to do it, that you will feel proud. And that turned out not to be true for all kids. And I think that is going to be also quite true about either low-code or generative AI, where, yeah, you can type into chat GPT, make me a Minecraft, and maybe it will do something that's mildly similar. But then, are you proud of your work? Do you feel like you are also a participant? Have you contributed to this work? And this is, of course, what programming class is about for me. It isn't about building something, but it's about learning something. And it's also about feeling that you can do something. I think so many kids, also adults, by the way, so many people have this very consumption-based relation with technology. Like they sit and they watch YouTube or TikTok or Instagram. They're only receiving something and never are they a creator in a digital world. I made this super silly app on my phone where if I shake my phone, it makes a picture. Like this is, you understand that this is baby stuff that any 10-year-old should be able to do. My friends, adult friends are like, oh my God, Fellini, you're such a technology wizard. I'm like, this is literally a programming app with blocks. app inventor. Very cool. It's like Scratch. And you click five blocks together. And it's like, click, click, click. Oh, I made a picture. I don't have to unload my phone. Like, that level of not being able to participate in creation, this is what I care about for kids, that they think of something silly and they're able to make it. So you want to have a situation in which they feel that they are adding a meaningful contribution to whatever they're using, whether that is a worksheet or a low-code tool or generative AI tool. But if they don't feel like their thinking was necessary, then it's not going to reflect on their self-efficacy, like on their feeling powerful in the technology world. 
Yeah. In some ways, the process of that is as important as the outcome. Yeah. And their role in the process. Yeah. This is not just true for worksheets, also for parents, like, oh, yeah. let's do programming together. And then they do all the work. And then look, my kid is so brilliant. And the kid's like, I wasn't even in the equation. Yeah, that's a fantastic analogy. So I feel like we've talked a lot about sort of why this works and the impact it has. I love to dig in a little bit of how it works, because from a technical standpoint, I've never made a programming language. That sounds incredibly difficult. I looked at the GitHub repo a little bit and tried to kind of understand what was going on. But I'm curious to hear, like, what are sort of the design principles and the ways that you make this do what you're describing, right? Which is an abstraction of Python, a simplification, a subset, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So if you make a programming language, you sort of need to think of two parts, which are probably terms that are somewhat familiar, syntax and semantics. So syntax is what goes in the programming language. And for Python, syntax of let's do a print statement would be, well, a print statement and then brackets and then in between quotes and then text. And for Haiti, this is just print and then text. You need a formalism to describe your syntax, which is usually a grammar. So you say, this is my grammar. I accept the word print. And after the word print, I accept any text that is just not a new line. That's more or less how a grammar works. Then you have a tool called a parser that eats the text and also the grammar and compares these side to side. So oh, what I'm expecting is print. Ah, I'm seeing print. Oh, now I'm expecting text. Ah, this is also text. Yay. And it creates a parse tree, which is you could just visualize this like a binary tree or whatever, red, black tree, what your favorite tree is. So a tree structure that says, I have seen print as a root, and then it has a leaf node, and that is the text that it's printing. From that parse tree, you can then do whatever you want. Some programming languages, C, for example, uses a compiler, so that transforms the parse tree into bytecode, binary code, or zeros and ones. Or you can have an interpreter, which often Python uses, where you read the parse tree, and then while a program is running, it thinks, oh, I see print. Well, I have to do printing. Oh, I see the text. Well, this text is what I have to print. What Haiti does is a little bit in between, which is called transpilation, which is transforming not to binary code, but transforming to something else. So what Haiti does is it transforms our parse tree back into Python, and then we just execute the Python. You make that sound so simple. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the basic is simple, but then of course you have to do a lot of, we have to put a lot of thinking in what goes in which level, but then the basics of writing a grammar and then changing the transpiler, that is the same. Interesting. So from a technical standpoint, Is it just a text parser that transforms this into Python? Like, obviously, there's a lot going on there, but is that like the most oversimplified description of it? Yes. With one caveat, we are browser-based because most schools, also my school, we cannot install something on the computer. So it needs to run in a browser. So then, oh, I have Python, but how do you execute Python in a browser? So we use a front-end framework called Sculpt. We didn't implement this. This is just another open source project. So then our front end executes the Python in JavaScript. So we have JavaScript running that can process Python and it can execute it in the browser. Interesting. So is it like a WebAssembly kind of parser? Like like WebAssembly in what it does, but it's just JavaScript. 
Got so it. it's just JavaScript that's running that understands what a Python string means and can execute the Python string. Fascinating. So there's no virtual machines or anything like that. It's all no, it's just a browser. Okay. Are there ways to break out of this? Like, have you seen students like poking at the boundaries of what this can do? Like, how strict is the actual parser here? So we try to make it as not strict as possible, but that isn't always possible because we want to have like our goal is to not have angry parse errors or just yeah. allow you to do whatever. But sometimes we have kids that already know a little bit of Python and they go to level one and they're, I know Python and they put brackets there. And then that doesn't work because the brackets aren't necessary. So sometimes it will give you a nice error message. But if you try to go beyond the levels, then sometimes it will just, it won't crash, but it will just say syntax error unexpected brackets. And then we're like, ah, that's sad. But that's really hard. So as you were going into this, it felt like you sort of had your design principles at least like scoped out in your mind, right? Like you knew what you were trying to create. You knew yeah. some of the core fundamentals. Were there any assumptions you had going into it that were just wrong? That like once you started watching students use it, it was very clear that you were approaching it in an incorrect way? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that Heidi is now known for that it wasn't in the beginning is that it's a multilingual programming language as well. So you can program in Dutch, French, Spanish, Japanese. We support 47 different languages, including non-Latin ones like Chinese or Japanese, but also right to left languages like Arabic, Urdu, Hebrew. That was not in there in the beginning. So the UI was always Dutch because I was teaching in the Netherlands in Dutch. But the programming keywords in the beginning were in English because basically I didn't even think of. I can say, well, I thought it was easy enough. That's not even true. I didn't even consider not doing it. And then I did this small but formal user study where I asked the 12-year-olds, I built this thing. What do we do to make it better? And the kids were like, why cannot we put the code there in Dutch? Because they say the whole interface is Dutch and the error messages were always localized. So there was some localization. The error messages were in Dutch. The exercises were in Dutch. But the code itself was not in Dutch. I was like, but why though? You know, Dutch teenagers, you can do English very well, and print is print in my language, basically the same thing. Echo is echo. How hard is it? And the kids were like, why not? You built this. Why do you build it in English? It's for us. Why is it not Dutch? <laughs> this is a great point, you children. So then we built this multilingual keywords. And initially I was still, I was only building it because I just wanted to prove them that I could do it. I didn't really, really believe it would add some. But then when we had Dutch, then we got German and French, which are less like English than Dutch. And then we got Hindi in not Latin. Many things crashed because <laughs> we were not prepared for that. And not just us, but also the whole technology stack is a very, very ill prepared for non-ASCII characters. But then I was looking at Hindi. I was like, yeah, I see how if your language is Hindi and you're explaining what print is, you're like, print with a P and the kids are like, what is a P, right? Where's a P on my keyboard? And how is a P different from a B and a D? And then Hindi, of course, is used in India where many people are multilingual, but then there are other communities, even in France, in EU, right? Where it's really, really hard to just get the right spelling of words that aren't in your language. So the further we got away from English and Dutch, the more I was like, I was an idiot here. 
how did I ever think this would not matter? And then that, I've been very open about that from the start. It was never one of our design goals. I didn't think of it. The people we have to think for that is the 12-year-olds in my class. And this is why we're now going global and why we're being used everywhere, like Indonesia, Puerto Rico. There's so many places where Haiti is really gaining more and more market share, so to say. I mean, it's a free product, but you know what I mean. Only because I leaned into this comment of why not. It wasn't on a roadmap ever. And now it is, if you look at our front page, it's like, this is the three things that make Hattie special. And one of them is you can program in your own language. Does it accept both? Like if you type print or yeah. if you type whatever the localized word is, they both work. Yes, it accepts any language and English. You could theoretically also mix two other languages. Like maybe you want to mix Hindi and Bengali or Tamil and Hindi because those are spoken yeah. in the same countries. We don't do that now because it's performance reasons mainly. It makes the parsing really slow if we would accept all 47 languages. Yep. So then you have to make logical combinations. For now, we're basically just accepting any language, like, for example, Spanish and English. But maybe if we would get a community that would really very much would like one other mix or three mix even, that would still be reasonable, but 47 just makes it too slow. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I know that programming in general is very English oriented. But I guess like reconciling that with when people actually become multilingual in school and when they yeah. learn other languages, which is fairly common, right? But they may not happen at the same time. They may not happen in the same context. They may not have the resources. Like I never even really thought about that before. Yeah. And then I changed my mind once more. Well, it wasn't like changing my mind, but I learned another perspective later on in this process. So initially I thought this is about making it easier. And, yeah. Oh yeah, you know, print, it's hard if it's not your language, which is also true. But many people are also bilingual or they know English. So it's not just about it being easier. So the most, the experience that changed my life was when I was in Botswana in South Africa a few months ago where everyone's bilingual because yeah. you know the Brits used to be there. But the teacher said, we are more excited about programming Hedy in Setswana than the kids, because our children have learned that English is the language of technology. So they believe that to be in technology is to be in English. Their language isn't ever there. This is a language with 6 million speakers. So there's just yep. not, not so many software that works. So they're like, if we use Hedy in Setswana, it's not for ease of use. Kids don't care. They might prefer English. But what this allows us to do is to show that our culture is also the culture of technology, that our language is also there on the internet. And that, I think, has been increasingly what drives also people to Hedy, like Puerto Rico, for example, which is also bilingual, of yeah. course, with English and Spanish. But people want to do Spanish because they want to do what they feel in their heart also in the computer. They don't, yeah. do not want to somehow be forced to use a certain language in a certain context. And then again, I was like, me, that I'm not a native speaker, you can clearly hear that, but me being comfortable enough with English and also having no negative connotation with English because mm -hmm. they never really ruled my country. Mm -hmm. I don't care for those reasons about not doing English, about whatever is the language of technology and wherever my culture, my culture is English-American. Anyway, that's the dominant cultural framework here with movies and TVs and music. Mm -hmm. 
I was like, wow, another thing I never thought about why this matters. And another reason, maybe one more is also ergonomics is another mm -hmm. thing I didn't think about. But if you type Arabic, for example, if you have an Arabic keyboard, you can only have one keyboard software, right? Either you type a P or you type a G or something yeah. in Arabic. That is the first sound of print in Haiti. You cannot have them both. So if you want to type an Arabic string, which makes a lot of sense if you're printing something, you have to do English keyboard, print, mm. Arabic keyboard, your string. Next line, English keyboard, print. Go back to Arabic, your string. Every line, you have to switch between these keyboards, either clicking or switching with a key on your keyboard. That is so annoying. That's like two extra P presses per line. And of course, kids, specifically learners, they're going to mess this up. But even yep. if you're proficient, just switching keyboards all the time, and it's so annoying. This is another thing where like, I didn't think of this because Dutch and English share the same alphabet, more or less. So many issues where like, I'm learning so many things about localization and culture and technology that I had never thought about. And then here I want to say like one more thing, because... Sometimes people say like, oh, you're the creator of Hedy, which I am. Like, I don't want to make myself smaller than I need to be. But also we have this amazing community worldwide. How do we have 47 languages? Almost 400 volunteers have submitted translations and have had the patience to explain to me why I had all sorts of assumptions about their languages that were blatantly wrong and how I should change my programming to better support Chinese, Hindi, Arabic. This whole worldwide community that's going together to make programming more fair has been such an amazing rise. That's fantastic. We didn't really even dig into the open source community that's grown around this, but it feels like that's one of the most powerful you know, ways that these types of projects evolve. Yes, absolutely. And I didn't really have a, like, a great feeling with open source when I was growing up because, or when I was a student because... There are some people in open source that aren't great and they have some views towards women that I don't appreciate. So I had never thought I would be an open source person because everyone I saw was an open source person, didn't look like me, didn't clearly didn't have the same worldview. So I never considered myself to be someone that was in that space. But then I put this on GitHub, <laughs> not even for any reason other than putting your stuff on GitHub makes it really easy to deploy in Heroku. It yeah. just easily connects. And I just wanted to have something free to just put my little prototype online. I just put it on GitHub. And then after a while, people started to do contributions. And I was like, oh, well, still there's problematic aspects of open source. But also, you can really create this community of people. Like I hang out with people now from Venezuela every week online because they're helping me build my product. It's just been so cool. That's fantastic. Definitely the positive side of open source communities. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we only have a minute or two left here. Are there any parting thoughts that you have for people who are out there teaching developers, teaching the next generation? Yeah, as well. Try Hedy. It's free and open source. So I'll be grateful if you try it out, if you're considering teaching somewhere. And the other thing maybe that's very related to our philosophy is learning is hard. And the minute you know something, you forget how hard it is. So if you see a beginner in whatever system or language, trip on small stuff like a bracket or a quote. This takes time. Keep always in mind this comparison with mathematics. 
if you have a seven-year-old and they're learning addition, how often do they practice addition? Hundreds of worksheets, right? Practice, practice, practice. So how can we expect that if we explain once that print need brackets, that they will remember it and that this will not take forever to get in their long-term memory? This just explain once and then try it out. I don't know how we got in the situation where we think that is a way to learn syntax or programming. You have to think of those worksheets for addition and then subtraction and then multiplication. That is how you teach stuff. And we need to get more of that into programming because otherwise we will not get the diversity that we want for the reasons we already talked about. So learning is hard and be patient and do not think, oh, this kid or adult is just not made for programming. We don't say that about math. Do we ever say, oh, this seven-year-old is just not made for addition? No, we just keep going because everyone needs to know this and everyone can know this. So be patient with learners. We need everyone in computing. Could not agree more. Thank you so much for your time and everything you shared. And we'll definitely link out to Hetty and hopefully, you know, people will check it out and maybe use it next time they're teaching someone to code. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. Definitely subscribe for more of this going forward. And yeah, happy hacking. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.